I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to History Hacks, another World War II one for you today. Um, But with a difference, because Alina's been uh, stalking people. And Alina, who have you found and dragged onto the podcast? So we have two people with us today. Uh, first is Tracy Spate, who is a director of special projects at Wargaming Net, a publisher and a leading game developer who also has a background in history. Our second guest is Andy Brockman, who is a conflict archaeologist and investigative researcher. He's the editor of the Pipeline blog and has recently published a book with Tracy Spate called The Spitfires of Burma, a fake history which is out right now. And today we're going to talk about exactly that. Hi guys, how are you doing? Uh, Tracy, you're in Cyprus. Uh, I'm not, I didn't ask you where you were, Andy. I'm actually in sunny Woolwich, South East London. Oh, how is lockdown? Have you had enough now? I'm in a very whingy place this week with it all. I think everybody, every, everybody's having a very weird time, aren't they? It, it's, um, it, it's, it's as though we're in one of those sort of um, Tralfamadorian zoos from science fiction where the, this, this artificial world's been created by the aliens for us all to live in. Um, <laughs> But um, no, we're, we're, thankfully, um, you know, uh, I can only hope that the people who listen to this have had, uh, haven't had haven't to, had to, to deal with the things that too many people have had to deal with. We've been very lucky so far and we haven't been touched by the pandemic. So uh, apart from the inconvenience of having to live at home with one's loved ones all the time. But um, yeah, we're, we're OK. Thank you. Tracy, how about you, Cyprus? At least you're warm. Uh, well, yeah, life in the bunker is not so bad. I mean... Uh, have books to read and uh, we have a little courtyard with lemon trees and um, uh, a thriving garden so it's been nice uh, spending more time at home and uh, a little more leisure reading than I was used to. I miss the water cooler discussions with all my great colleagues at Wargaming but uh, otherwise you know we're an online company anyway so we're sort of used to working remotely or as long as I got a laptop and uh, my cell phone I can do most things. Um, so start then by telling us about this legend of the buried spitfires of Burma. Well, shall I, shall I start? It's, um, it really came to public notice in March of 2012 when David Cameron went to Myanmar um, as the representative really of the European Union at that point. Myanmar was opening up uh, like a really a sort of butterfly after uh, years of military dictatorship and uh, Aung San Suu Kyi had just been released from house arrest and was uh, the leading politician in the country without yet being the uh, effectively the head of, head of state and it was a very hopeful period um, and 
at this point, David Cundall, who's a farmer from Lincolnshire, um, and a man called Steve Boltby Brooks, uh, who runs the Spitfire, Boltby Spitfire Academy down in Sussex, um, by some combination of contacts, persuaded the Foreign Office and Cameron's Cabinet Office that um, this was a project, the, the, the search for buried Spitfires in Yangon International Airport, which had been an RAF base during World War II, um, was a goer. And so Cameron, apparently, in, had a negotiation with Tank Sein, who was the president of Myanmar at the time, and they agreed on a joint heritage project to recover these legendary aircraft, which David had been chasing for the previous 20 years, it now it turns out. And um, it became a worldwide story in, um, when it was reported in the, by the press pack that was travelling with Cameron. And at which point Tracy came in on, uh, comes in because uh, you picked up in the States, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. I was in um, the San Francisco Bay Area at the time, and I was engaged in several heritage projects. We've just been working with uh, uh, USS Iowa, which becomes the Pacific Battleship Center at Pier 87 in LA. And I was looking at, okay, what projects might we work on next? And this came across my desk in April of 2012. I read that the British Prime Minister, David Cameron, had negotiated this agreement with the president of Myanmar to recover and repatriate these uh, lost uh, Spitfire aircraft. And I thought, wow, this is an incredible story. Wouldn't that be amazing if this is true? And I read articles in The Telegraph, The Guardian, the BBC. It received quite a lot of news coverage. So at that point, didn't have a strong basis for doubting it. I mean, after all, surely somebody at 10 Downing Street had checked out the story or the BBC. And yet they were all describing it as, yes, these things were left there at the end of the war at Mingladon uh, Airfield and so on. Um, I'll just plow ahead a bit. Uh, so I got in touch with David Kundal and found out that he and uh, Steve Boltby Brooks had basically had a falling out. Uh, so there was an opening and I thought, well, why don't you come out, visit us in San Francisco? Uh, so I sent him a ticket and brought him out to our office and, we met with David. He brought a big stack of uh, documents with him, letters from veterans talking about things that they had seen or heard about Spitfires being dumped or buried at the time. And it was all quite convincing. David is a very good storyteller. Uh, he's a very kind of salt-of-the-earth figure and um, has, uh, well, a, a good persona about this. At the time, we thought, well, it might be true. We might dig a hole and uh, find these lost aircraft. That would be just an amazing story. Or we might dig a big hole and they've all rusted or rotted away and there's nothing there. Or it'll be like that episode of uh, the Geraldo uh, where they opened Al Capone's vault on live TV and there was nothing inside. So we were aware <laughs> these were all possibilities. But we thought, you know, it's not very much money. It's, uh, we'll go have a look and see. We'll see if it's possible to even get this contract for David to be allowed to proceed with an excavation or surveys of boreholes and whatnot. Uh, so it was just kind of like a, let, let's see if there's something to this uh, when we initially got involved. What kind of evidence did David have that these Spitfires existed? Well, he showed us uh, two different geophysical scans of parts of the airfield, which were indicative of buried metal, according to the resistivity measurements and so on. 
he had a whole bunch of letters from various veterans who had responded to advertisements he had put in things like Fly Pass Magazine, asking veterans who had served at RF, RAF Mingladon to recount what they had seen or heard. Uh, he had shipping manifests recording uh, the passage of aircraft uh, brought by ship to Calcutta and other places. And assembled together, it, it told a fairly compelling story. Uh, I think at that time, we didn't have enough of a sense of exactly what we were looking at. We are uh, not experienced in geophysics or understanding these plots and so on. But David told a good story uh, when we saw these things. So um, I, I think uh, we had enough sense to know that it could go different ways. It could be a shaggy dog story, or there might be a kernel of truth to this. And maybe even if the exact account isn't correct, uh, maybe there's something there. Sandy, how do you get dragged into all of this? Because it's actually quite an interesting story. Um, it is a story that couldn't have happened. The project couldn't have happened without the platform that we're using now, the modern you know, social media and video conferencing and, and, and so on. Um, essentially, what happened was, I'm, I, while, while Tracy's trying to put this project together from the Bay Area of California, I'm sat here in London as a conflict archaeologist being rung up by one of my colleagues to say, have you seen what's, what's broken on the in the press and I looked at the story looked at the same coverage Tracy did and my sort of conflict archaeology antennae started twitching because I think but wait a minute I've heard this kind of story before from lots of other different places usually involving a high-end piece of kit like a, a tiger tank or a you know, there's the legendary Sterling bomber that's missing in a, in a, in a hangar in Siberia and, 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 and so on you know pe people in this game we hear these stories quite regularly but this one, having attracted the attention of the Prime Minister, okay, this is more interesting than most. This has got more legs than most. So let's have a look at it. And I, I ended up writing an article um, for Marcus Milligan's um, Heritage Daily and saying basically, yeah, this is a weird story. Uh, we've heard stories like this before. There are lots of inconsistencies, but it's worth looking at, firstly, as an example of the kind of folklore that grows up from World War II. But secondly, also, if there's the slightest possibility it's true, then it needs to be looked at archaeologically and recorded archaeologically because it's so remarkable that just lamming in with JCB, uh, the big yellow trowel, um, wouldn't be appropriate. So I put that out there and then it was picked up by the production company in New York, which Tracy had engaged for Wargaming to, for Wargaming to uh, make a documentary about the project. So yeah we're, we're, yeah, we're now working in three time zones, Myanmar, London and and, and, and California. Well, four, actually, because New York and California are on different time zones in the States. So, you know, the, it's, it's becoming a, a major international project and almost from, without any, anybody intending that to be the case from the start. Um, Tracy, so what was going on in New York? Well, actually, I'd brought them out from New York. So I knew uh, John Halperin and uh, Mark Minucci and those guys from they were formerly at National Geographic, and I'd worked um, with the CFO at National Geographic for uh, a few years before that. And so I thought, okay, well, the most interesting part of this is going to be the story. And whatever happens, if we don't record the beginning of it, then we can't exactly go back in time and try and capture it later. So we took a risk, and I thought, okay, well, we'll bring them out, we'll do some filming, and uh, we have to capture the beginning of this process of trying to get the contracts going into a country that's been closed off for, well, most of the last several decades, more or less. Um, 
to capture the story as it's happening on the ground. And in the course of the interviews that we had filmed with David while we were in Myanmar, we started running into inconsistencies that didn't quite jive. Uh, and that led us to, okay, CBs. Does he mean the construction battalions from the U.S. Army that were operating in the far north of the country? Does he mean uh, the CBs, like, uh, you know, uh, they sound the same, but it, it's different. The CBs from the Navy who are building all of the PSP-based runways across the South Pacific uh, because they were involved in his version of the story of how the things were buried. So we ended up doing a bunch of digging in U.S. archives where these things are stored. And we kept finding, no, they were never at Minglodon, which in the course of doing some of this digging and researching, we run across Andy Brockman's article, and none of us had ever heard of conflict archaeology. We didn't know what that was, but we quickly realized that Andy had a deeper expertise in how to work in 20th century military archives that, um, well, I'm, I'm an 18th century historian, so things were a bit different in that day. Uh, so we realized we needed this kind of expertise to help us. And that led to my commissioning Andy to come in and write a proper desktop study to evaluate all the evidence that we did have. So then you guys decide that you're going to start filming. And Tracy, you first head to Leeds to interview two academics who were involved with David on previous excavations. Can you tell us a bit more about that and what happens? Right. Um, okay, I think you mean the geophysicists, uh, Dr. Adam Booth and um, uh, Dr. Roger Clark, yes. uh, who are associated with Leeds University. Uh, Adam is now teaching in London, I think. Uh, Adam had been a grad student at the time that David had first phoned him up. Uh, David is based in Lincolnshire, and so is University of Leeds, and uh, David would call them up and uh, say, hey, you know, I, I've uh, I've heard about this uh, crash Spitfire or hurricane or, or whatnot. And over the, the years through the 90s and 2000s, he was often involved in excavating various crash sites across the UK. So they had some experience working with them. And David had successfully found and recovered some aircraft in the past, which is you know partly which uh, gave his story to, for us some credibility. On this occasion, though, he had called up um, Adam Booth and... Uh, Roger Clark and said, hey, I want to go to Burma. And at first they thought he was saying something like Birmingham, not Burma. And he's like, no, I really, uh, I mean, Myanmar, I want to go to the other side of the world and um, you know, check out this site where I believe there's some buried Spitfires. And they thought, well, okay, the crazier things have happened in war, but we have the equipment and the expertise. And if we can help out, why not? It'll be interesting. And so Adam had gone out with David on that expedition in 2004 and done a survey of the, um, the sort of target area where David said the witnesses had seen or heard things about uh, aircraft being disposed of or buried. At, at this point, we're all working with David's version of the, the story, mm. though we're adding more and more documentary material uh, afterwards. The crucial thing about Adam Booth's work, um, as, as Tracy said, uh, um, uh, Adam was a grad student at University of Leeds in 2004. He goes out to Myanmar to help out David. He's on his own. Um, and he's told to survey a particular area where David says things are happening. Um, there is a metallic return there. It's in Adam's geophysics plots. They get, a, they get a 360 in. They put a hole in the ground. They hit some timbers. And then 
there has been a power struggle in the Myanmar government at, the, at exactly this moment. And the person who's the patron of the project, we subsequently found out, um, basically became an unperson under house arrest. Um, and they were escorted from the site at gunpoint. Um, so there was this huge cliffhanger, we, we were told. Yeah. Um, the crunch of wood as the digger bucket just started the dig and then it absolutely. was halted and everyone was escorted off. Uh, absolutely. So in, in, in storytelling terms, there's this huge narrative hook to mm. take the story on further. And so that's effectively what we were preparing to do once the licenses have been agreed and permissions have been agreed between the um, Wargaming and David and the Myanmar government in the autumn yeah. of, of 2012. And the, uh, the Myanmar partner of David, the STP or Swetong Poor, that process took us all summer and into the fall. So it wasn't even clear if this was going to go anywhere until it was formally signed in late October of 2012. So until that point, it was kind of a, it was placing a poker chip down to see, well, this would be really cool if we had the opportunity to do it, but it wasn't at all clear that it would proceed at all. I mean, after all, it's uh, occurring in Myanmar, which was just opening up to the world and uh, this is their only international airport, and we were proposing to dig a big hole next to the active runway, which you know, made certain parties in the government un, un, uneasy. We had to convince seven different ministries to allow us to proceed. Wow. Um, so in the... You're, Tracy, you carry on filming interviews and meeting various people, especially veterans. Mm -hmm. uh, how do these meetings go, especially with Major Roger Browning? Is this the point where your views begin to change? Well, uh, okay, I met uh, Major Roger Browning on November 11, 2012 at the, um, uh, what's the, Taiyokyan uh, Cemetery that's just outside of Yangon, where they commemorate uh, British and Commonwealth forces uh, that had basically, uh, that had perished in the fighting. And it was quite extraordinary. They had members of the Burmese Rifles, several, um, British soldiers had flown over. It was a, quite an assemblage. And there were ambassadors, diplomatic uh, corps, military attaches and representatives from all these governments come together to give speeches, lay wreaths at this cemetery. And while I was there, I ran into uh, Major Roger Browning. And it turned out that he had been the officer in charge of the 652nd Mechanical Unit, which was responsible for extending the runway at Mingladon at the end of the war. And I thought, well, surely if anybody's going to know about uh, you know, burials, it would be somebody like this. And in our conversation, uh, he said, well, no, I have no recollection of an operation like that. And I'm sure I would have known. Uh, he did allow that, well, there could have been disposal of um, you know, shot up airframes or other kind of material bulldozed at the end of the war to convert it for civilian use. He said, well, that that's possible. But he was pretty doubtful of David's idea that uh, Spitfire has been crated and left there deliberately. Uh, he didn't put much stock in that. And then Andy uh, would subsequently interview him back in the UK uh, I met him in Myanmar, and then Andy would interview him uh, in the UK later. We, we also ought to mention um, Group Captain Maurice Shaw, who, uh, who, was, um, who, who actually came to us. Um, Serendipity. <laughs> ser but serendipitously, and, and actually in, in research terms, uh, very helpfully 
untainted by having had his testimony um, interpreted through David Cundall, which our other principal witness, private, uh, well, later Corporal uh, Stanley Coombe had, who we also had the pleasure and privilege of meeting and working with. But Morris um, had, was a, um, had a very long career in the Royal Air Force, but it began really in Burma with an RAF engineering unit on Mingledon in, in the autumn of 45. Mm-hmm. But he said he'd not seen anything such as David described while he was actually stationed there. Certainly hadn't seen any Americans. Although he'd, he'd worked with Americans in the up-country. Up country. Um, but when he was later posted to Singapore, chatting to people in, in, uh, who'd fo- who followed him on from England or later, there were stories that Spitfires had been dumped, disposed of, buried, sunk in swamps, the stories vary. And to, to, to put the rest of the witness testimony just in perspective, um, this, is, this testimony is from, uh, relates to the autumn uh, and winter of 1945, um, when there are... There, there appears to be service gossip that something odd is going on with Spitfires at Mingledon, and the accounts vary, but nobody has actually seen anything. There's no photographs, there's no documents. And then in the following spring, Stanley Coombe, um, who ha- has been training in India for the invasion of Malaya, which then doesn't happen in, uh, 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 in, in full force, it becomes a, a live fire exercise, and uh, he ends up in... Uh, in, crossing over England on airfield in an army truck on a new posting around uh, April 1946 uh, when he's just celebrated his 21st birthday he's fixed that in his head he then says that he saw crates next to the runway where it was being worked on um, by the road that his truck was travelling on and then the following day uh, he doesn't see anything happening he, he doesn't see, he's at, the, the crates aren't open he doesn't know what's in them the following day, he's working the other side of the airfield, which is this big flat griddle place of, 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 um, of clay, basically, above, above Rangoon, as well as Yangon, as is now. And he looks across the airfield, and he can still see the crates. There's a part that this, this, these crates piled up, what being dealt with. It happens to be the engineering section of the airfield, we now know from uh, the other documents, um, where the main engineering dispersal was. And he asks an RAF who's there so you've got an, arts, an army corporal and an rf and he says what's what's in those crates over the air over there and he as stanley told it the RAF guy says well would you believe it mate they're spitfires <laughs> and that is that is the extent of the of, of the checkable witness statements everything else that we've seen um we well we, we can we can maybe discuss later about how to you know how you use research with quotes witnesses um and and the and the the importance of it but also the pitfalls that it can lead you into if you don't if you don't uh, do the normal checks and balances it's all feeling a bit ropey isn't it at this point <laughs> <laughs> it's about it's about to get better it's okay about to get much much this better. is great go on because um, Andy then takes part with Tracy in a press conference at the Imperial War Museum in November 2012. And I think, I think we're going to start with Andy because Tracy can tell us uh, what, what it all looked like afterwards. Okay, so what is happening in the run-up to the press conference is that um, we have recognised that David is a, is a born storyteller. Um, but he has, uh, he's not got, he, he doesn't possess an edit button. 
and so we've as is you know any any modern high profile project that's about to go into a press conference we, we the day before we're doing a a, a media prep session uh, in a hotel in, in uh, just off the city uh and we've come up with a framing device which allows everybody to be able to leave with dignity if the spitfires aren't there and basically what we've what we've agreed is that we're going to do a csi yangon uh, a crime scene investigation where we've got a missing, an alleged missing person, but we don't even know if they are actually genuinely missing by now, because there's nothing in the documents or anywhere else that suggests this happened. So we're 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 wanting to try and chase the story through. And to their credit, Wargaming stuck with it. And um, when even though they'd had this heads up that almost certainly these aeroplanes aren't there, and almost certainly it's a modern myth. Um, but they decided to stick with the project to continue to fund it uh, and to do the field work. So that I, you know, in, in the end, if we'd have just said, no, nah, don't believe it, evidence doesn't stack up, all the true believers will say, ah, oh, yeah, but you didn't dig any holes, so how do you know? Of course they're there, it's part of the cover-up, you know, because, because again, there's, there's this um, uh, smokescreen of innuendo that the British government is somehow incredibly embarrassed by what happened um, because it deals with still living members of the... Uh, or, or members of the royal family and, and, and um, potentially still living on, you know, military officers, secret service people and so on, that there's still a cover-up going on at top level in Whitehall to prevent this story coming out. Um, basically because it was about interference in the internal politics of Burma as was um, putting, pitting the, the Burman majority against the Karen people, uh, Hill people. Um, who have been close allies of Britain, British, and particularly the SOE uh, during during World War Two. So there's this sort of slightly spooky secret squirrel aspect as well that we, we we're needing to deal with. Um, so basically, we um, we agreed we agreed at the, at the press conference that we we present it as a CSI um, that we'd introduce the team uh, who who were going to be doing the field work, and we we we'd say we were going into it with a completely open mind. Um, with no preconceptions, we were going to follow the evidence wherever the evidence took it and then report it openly. At which point, uh, it was all going very nicely and then David started giving interviews saying that there were 12, 24, 36 or more Spitfires, depending on who he was talking to at the time. Um, and Buried so, on the orders of Lord Louis Montbatten of Southeast yeah. Asia and as part I of the secret operation. I have to say that, that you guys are on yeah. camera and Tracy <laughs> is chuckling his way through this. Uh, that you've got a sense of humour about it. Is It makes you a bigger person than I would have been in this scenario. Uh, well, you can um, laugh or cry and you never you guys, know go on, sorry. where you might end up. Uh, you guys journey. fly to Burma. That's where you end up in January 2013, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So tell us mm -hmm. about that. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so, again, because Wargame wanted to do this properly by the, uh, by the archaeology, uh, we've gone through the, the, the usual process of desktop research. We then wrote a, an extensive project design, safety briefs, how we deal with UXO, how we deal with human remains, if we found human remains. And, of course, remembering that the uh, RAF Minglodon um, was effectively fought over twice um, during World War II and, and, and actively bombed for much of the rest of the war. Um, so it was highly likely that we would find you know, a lot of uh, uh, conflict archaeology and potentially you know, unexploded ordnance and, and, and human remains. So all, all of that was covered. We had a detailed project design. We had um, a, an expert um, plant operator to work with us because we were using, the, so again, we're going to be using the standard um, fieldwork techniques of doing surface strip and then um, a bucket excavation until we need to take over by hand. Uh, and we'd recruited um, to go with the, our geophysicists uh, from, from University of Leeds, Andy Merritt, Adam Booth, who actually at, the point, at that point was actually at Imperial in London, but anyway, um, Adam Booth and, and, and Andy Merritt, um, to work with them and to put, give effect to the geophysics. Um, we had a field director, Martin Brown, from the No Man's Land Project, probably one of the country's most experienced conflict archaeologists and um, who I'd first worked with on a time team uh, a few years earlier um, and also uh, another no man's land colleague uh, Rod Scott who as well as being a qualified archaeologist is also a, a military EOD operator and a specialist in uh, period ordnance so could they both keep you safe and interpret what you find so treating that kind of material as part of the finds assemblage so absolutely crucial on in, in, in conflict archaeology on what had been an active uh, conflict site in the 20th century so we, we were we were fully prepped to do this um, and we arrived there we put in place a complete new geophysics survey so we can compare it with the 2004 work that Adam had already done plus two other companies that David had commissioned uh, and we begin on the basis of that, to work at a location which David had identified in 2004, where those timbers had been found, uh, and where David again repeated to us that, yep, this is where I believe they are, and this is where we found the timbers in 2004, but we were stopped, we weren't allowed to go any further. What happens then, though, is that we look, um, the first big machine trench on that location, um, Martin and Manny. Uh, who the, the, the machine operator, both right, of them yeah. said, yeah, Manny Mercado, uh, who sadly died recently, but um, terrific guy and terrific part. Very, he's one of those people who could have could use the bucket of a, of a JCB like a trowel. Brilliant, brilliant man. Um, what Between them, what they worked out was the ground had been turned over at least once before. Um, and oh, not, uh, and, 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 and Proof of that, both in the in the tip lines, but also 
the fact that there was a polythene carrier bag in the sport came out in the spoil. Um, and then <laughs> we get we get down we get down to about two and a half meters, and we hit blue clay natural, and the hole starts to flood. Now, if you're an RAF engineer and your boss says to you in 1945, I want you to bury some Spitfires there 30 feet down, which is what David was claiming, um, and you, you, you hit blue natural at two and a half metres, so what's that, about eight, nine feet? Um, and it's very, very wet. You're going to say, actually, that's not a really good idea, boss. I think you should do. I think you should think of something else to do with these aeroplanes. You know, fly them to India, and then we can fly them back again if we want to give them to the Quran. Um, It's just not the physical environment really makes the story not tenable. Yeah. What do you guys actually find? <laughs> Apart from the carrier bag, no, no, because no, you, you, you yeah. do find something. So, yes. what is it that you find? Yeah, I'll let Andy uh, speak to the archaeology, and then yeah, don't forget we're we're doing this archaeology. Um, we've got regular visits from um, convoys of black SUVs with military policemen on the back, uh, and and immaculately dressed uh, Myanmar Tatmadaw of senior officers. And government ministers, and remember, at this time the military, the military and the government are virtually interchangeable. Um, and, and obviously, our, our partners at STP, who, who have a lot at stake in in this, and we're very conscious of that. Um, what when that first hole um, came up with a, a very strong negative, we looked again at the geophysics and said, "Okay, we need to locate the prone road which Stanley Coombe had been driving on." Um, that morning, that day, when he said he saw the crates, because that would that would we, we could then prove the geography and we could give a, 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 a good indication of where those crates might have been. And uh, cut to the chase, uh, we did uh, several more trenches, extensive machine trenches, which were then recorded, looked at, and recorded archaeologically. We found uh, evidence of repeated episodes of flooding. On that particular part of the airfield, um, the the natural where it, um, where it hadn't been disturbed was within two three meters of the of the modern surface. There were elements of the nineteen forties concrete runways that were um, built after the war, still in situ. Look, most of it had been ripped out, but uh, when the runway was realigned in the nineteen fifties, but um, there were still elements of the of that. Uh, that, that architecture there, which proved something, and again proved that something that had been claimed had happened couldn't have happened because there was also a claim that the land surface had been built up by many feet since the war. In, 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 in all the parts of the airfield we looked at, that's just not true. You can actually see the, the landscape of 1940, of the 1940s, very close to the modern surface. Even, even when there are modern buildings, modern uh, runways, modern hardstands over the top, you can still um, work out the, the, the principal alignment of the of the main 1945 runway. Um, parts of it are even still in use by the Myanmar military. Um, so we were able to prove the conflict landscape, uh, and in fact, we did find what appeared to be the bed, at least, of a road in the right place, according to the air photographs, to have been the the, the prone road that Stanley's army truck had been on. 
Um, and next to that was a slit trench, which had been backfilled with sandbags, which again is entirely appropriate for the kind of thing that would have happened during World War II um, while the airfield was un uh, uh, under military use and military occupation because there would have been slit trenches all over the place for the um, either defensive or, or, or shelters. Um, you know, so we, we found conflict archaeology. There was a very limited number of finds, very small piece of PCP, uh, pistol plank, um, which we know was used to surface the runways and the hard stands, particularly during the monsoon season. Um, but it's not surprising there wasn't much of that left because if you go to Yangon nowadays, most people have got it in their garden fences. It's been reused all over the place, um, repurposed as often as fencing material. Um, we also found um, some uh, engineering bricks. Um, we can we worked out we found it afterwards where they probably came from, uh, or what they probably came from, um, and also um, one very large but unidentifiable um, bolt that we reckon from the quality of the steel was probably part of an aeroplane at one time, but we weren't able to identify what part of an aeroplane. So we, you know, we, we've, under very strange conditions and with a lot of politics going on around, we have actually managed to recover, I think, enough archaeology to make a reasonable, um, a, a reasonable thesis about what had, what had actually gone on there archaeologically. How does the media react? Hmm. I should say at the time, well, just to put, put uh, Tracy, uh, as Tracy, I mean, this was more Tracy's department, just to put it in the picture. Um, what, one, of the, one of the weird things, like I talked about time zones earlier, we're coming down um, to uh, breakfast and we're looking at, the, for example, the, the, the stories that have been published in London in the more in, in, in the papers or, or and, and, so, and and we discover that for example there are unofficial briefings going on so tracy from the point of view trying to run the project is both trying to deal with the diplomatic side but also um firefighting this constant dialogue with the media um which again there are lots of assumptions going on and lots of lots of positions are being made uh, being placed yeah, I guess you could say, I mean, to look back at what we did at the Imperial War Museum back in November of 2012, we tried to frame this as a, like an episode of CSI, CSI Burma, if you will, where <laughs> uh, we wanted David to back away from his more speculative statements about, you know, Lord Louis Montbatten running a secret parallel operation with Sturkey Park or others uh, to hide planes for the benefit of the Karen. Um, just we said, stick let's to just, the facts, basically. Yeah, let's yeah. just stick with what um, what you have heard and uh, from these veterans who were there at the time, who recall seeing or hearing things, and you know where they saw them. Let's focus on that. Uh, my own thinking at this point is: look, if there is some truth behind this legend, then perhaps as part of the post-war cleanup of the airfield, a bunch of stuff was dumped. Because as Dan, I, I, Andy finds in the, um, as part of the desktop study, we know that more than 100 planes were broken up in yeah. situ on the airfield. Uh, there was a report from the commander uh, at the time um, saying that these things are being broken up and then 
taking the sheets of aluminum off of the planes and turning them into cooking pots and utensils for the local population, many of whom had lost all this stuff during the occupation of the Japanese army. And so the, I, I thought there was some basis that, well, we may find some scrapped or shot up or you know, broken pieces of planes, and, and that would still be a pretty interesting story. Mm. Uh, but David just couldn't help himself with the press, and it was like playing the tape. We would hear about this story and the number of airplanes that he believes were buried, and the media gravitated towards that narrative much more than the CSI framing that we tried to put in place at the beginning of the project. So for them, this is a story about triumph or failure, whether he finds the planes or not finds the planes, that's the story for them. And it proved very difficult to uh, tell any other kind of story. So the funding is then pulled. You stop digging and pretty much just, just leave. So what happens after that? Well, uh, we didn't quite just leave. Uh, we were very conscious of the position that STP, the local Myanmar company, would be in. So I made sure that there were sufficient funds to uh, close up the site properly, do remediation and grading and fill in all the trenches, uh, all of that sort of thing we covered. And I also provided a little bit of funds for David to go up off Michina, uh, chasing another one of his theories about planes being buried up there as a way to help STP have a soft landing from this uh, very visible in the media um, uh, project. I, I didn't want to leave them twisting in the wind, in other words. And so we did take care to close down everything uh, properly. We, we were very conscious of that as, as, as a team because particularly as representatives of the former colonial power, we didn't, we were very, clear that we didn't want this to be seen as somehow these you know these white british people parachuting into myanmar to do this thing to the people of myanmar and then clearing away again with the glory um one of one of the things that we were very clear about doing the archaeology and it's in the project designs that uh, um, is that we would deal with the archaeology of any period and any culture equally so for example if there were um, you know, uh, if, if there were Spitfires there, but you know, they, they cut into a an earlier structure of the native Burman cultures or whatever, they would be recorded equally. And if that took more time, so be it. You know, it wasn't just a smash and grab raid on behalf of some British Spitfire enthusiasts. Mm. So. so, do you want to cover leaving then? <laughs> How you got out? <laughs> Well, I mean, by, by regular we, had a, we had a set amount of time. Yeah. I mean, uh, the geophysicists had to go back for the start of the semester. So there was a very clear bookend at the beginning of this project. We couldn't all just go there indefinitely. Uh, we had other commitments um, and responsibilities. So it was clear at the start, we would have a maximum of about two and a half or three weeks to do this project that had to fit in that window. And Having said that, it, it ha, you know, had the Spitfires been there, it could have been extended. So, you know, obviously... Yeah, we would have found a way. We would have brought exactly. people yeah. and so forth. But that was sufficient time uh, to basically go and ground truth this story. Mm. Yeah. And, 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 the, uh, uh, and David, in fact, stayed on. He, as Tracy said, he, he did go to Mission or although we told him and STP that according to the documents in London at Kew, uh, the National Ar Archive and other, elsewhere, 
um, there was no evidence that the RAF had even been in, um, active in a major way at, uh, yeah. at Mission Oil. It was an Ameri it, it was an American base once the town was recaptured in 1944. Um, so uh, we basically finished the our time limited part of the project. We returned to our day jobs and uh, and so on and, and are preparing to write the reports of what we've done because that again was part of the bargain. You know, we, we would report everything openly, good, bad, and indifferent. And um, so that's uh, what happens while David uh, carries on and eventually um, finds another sponsor uh, and, and uh, has one more attempt um, at digging with uh, that sponsor's support. Well, uh, he was digging in 2013 after we left, then again in 2014, and then I'm not really clear how many other digs may or may have happened after that. But yeah. uh, we, though, gave a public lecture at RAF. Museum. the RAF Museum. Oh, that's right, at the RAF Museum. We gave a public lecture on what we had found, and then subsequently we turned that into a 200-page report on the archaeology and geophysics of the site, uh, which we also put out in the public domain. Which it's fair to say that the people who believe in the Spitfire legends uh, think is full of errors and is part of the cover-up. So, I mean, it's still not stopped, has it? It's still continuing till now, this whole argument. Oh, the argument continues. Uh, <laughs> in fact, they had to shut it down on the aviation forums after they had passed 5,000 posts and more than a million views, where I think in the book we put it like... Uh, you know, the proprietor is sort of like the owner of a pub that decides it's time to close the doors and take all the, the kind of inebriated customers out and just say, you know, good night. Uh, so they shut that argument down after about three years uh, since basically one faction was challenging the competence and veracity uh, of our, our work. And uh, it just became very conspiratorial and strange. <laughs> The goalposts. It, it, it was an exercise. It, I, I liken it to a combination between moving the goalposts in a game of whack-a-mole, mm -hmm. because every time we came up with a an evidence-based explanation for what had been going on, the goalposts would move, and 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 what aboutery would happen? Mm -hmm. History whack-a-mole. We love it on History House. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. And it, this, this is, a, and it's one of the reasons we wanted to write the book, actually, because it's a textbook example of, of, of how mm. these stories develop and perpetuate themselves. And how, in fact, you know, as historians and archivists, we, we, we have to engage with them because, you know, we have a responsibility to the evidence and the lived history and the, mm. what, you know, whatever the, as close to an ob you know, objective story, truth, narrative, whatever you want to call it, uh, yeah. we, we have a responsibility to that. Um, but at the same time, these are, are, are fascinating parts of popular culture too. And we can't condemn them absolutely unless they're used, misused by bad actors, uh, right. as we see in other, you know, in, in other historical narratives. This is, this is a pretty benign one. It, it hasn't hurt anybody. The only thing that's been hurt is bank accounts. Yeah. And, I mean, and, and, maybe, and maybe a few reputations. But, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's, um, it's now... Uh, it remains a living part of the f folklore of World War II in the Far East. Um, it will continue to be that. Nothing we say or do is going to change that. And, and in fact, I was saying to Tracy just the other day, um, after we did um, one of these um, uh, interviews, talks about um, 
when we were talking about the book, somebody commented uh, underneath the uh, 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 underneath the recording. Um, I prefer to believe David rather than your cynicism. Oh wow! I can't if argue it makes with you that happy. Yes. <laughs> Does David still stand behind all of the stuff he was saying at the time? I mean, Tracy, you, said you, he, more contact with you said he couldn't help himself with th things like the Mountbatten link. And, uh, does he continue to, to have the same um, opinion? Well, uh, the last time I'd um, exchanged emails and had a phone conversation, I think he's still a believer uh, that these planes are out there and that we had simply dug in the wrong place. Uh, um, and there's a, actually, there's at least one other of his supporters as well who believe, still believes that there will, there will be um, big chunks of Spitfire there. And you know, it, we we never said there wouldn't be. We we never said. You know, looking at precedents, you know, the, there was the um, the Spitfire wing that turned up on Orkney a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. you know, th this these things do happen, but just not in the way that David's version of the legend describes i think it's fair to say so far you know heart rolling head perhaps yeah i mean we're, we're very clear in the book that uh, we're not blaming anyone for, the, for yeah. this we're not saying that anybody deliberately set out to dupe anybody you know um there may be an element of shaggy dog story about the original um story that appears to have come out of the united states in the 1970s um, although again, there, there, there's possible other possible reports that it was current again in the 1950s after that initial flurry in, in 1945, 1946. Um, but you know, it it wasn't. Yeah, you know, again, we have to believe David and the people who support him. They do genuinely love these aircraft as artifacts. That the, the existence of these artifacts is really important to them. The continued existence of these artifacts is really important to them. And, you know, I mean, Tracy, you, I mean, you've worked with lots of museums and you, you've met, again, people who spend vast amounts of money curating these things. And, oh, know. yeah. I've been out to uh, the late Paul Allen's collection, the Flying Heritage Collection um, in, uh, in Oregon. And these things are lovingly restored and maintained, both aircraft and tanks to a standard that's almost unbelievable. They look like they just came off the uh, assembly line. What I found extraordinary as an American coming into this project, I remember when we were filming at Duxford during an air show and they were flying Spitfires overhead. And I just watched the audience and you could see all the British people stand a little taller and straighter as the planes would swoop down into view. Uh, I learned all about Spitfire Ale and the wonderful ad campaign behind that and found it hilarious. Uh, or even the way that the Spitfire is commemorated in the, um, I forgot the name of the Abbey, where there's a stained glass window with the Spitfire. Bentley, Bentley Priory. The, uh, yeah, Bentley Priory. So I visited that as well. And we don't have anything quite like that in American culture around uh, the Second World War. We, we like our P-51s and stuff, but they're not an iconic thing the way that the Spitfire is. So that was quite revelatory uh, in doing this project. Um, guys, this has been absolutely fascinating. And there, there's obviously lots more to this story as well, if people are hooked on it. So tell people, what's the book called and where can they get it? Okay, the book is called The Buried Spitfires of Burma, A Fake History. 
Um, it is available from all good online sources. If you're in the UK or anywhere else where bookshops are opening up at the moment after lockdown, please support your local bookshop. We need them. Absolutely. Um, but um, wherever, wherever you buy it from, um, it's available uh, in hardback uh, from the History Press. Very spits up, spit by Zaburma, yep. a fake history. Looks like this. <laughs> good artwork, good artwork. Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, guys, for coming and talk to, talking to us about Burma, uh, the Spitfires, the interesting... Um, oh, my eyes gone completely blank now. Um, this is our first show on fake history, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Which I really like. But not, not fake as in vindictively fake, but turned out to be mm. in this case. But, um, yeah, it's our first, uh, first show on what goes wrong, what can go wrong. <laughs> and we're definitely going to have to get Andy back on because I know he's got a couple of others under his sleeve. Definitely. Join us tomorrow when Lawrence Owen will be with us to talk about mummies. And that's not the lovely kind that cook for you and do your washing. That's actual wrapped up in bandages um, and smelling bad mummies. Uh, that one's great. So don't miss it. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus and we would really appreciate it as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower and I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.